today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You like that beat? That's cool, right? You feeling that? Um, good morning with that amazing introduction. Woo! Feel the energy in the room. Hi, everybody. My name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here at Jacob's Well. Um, I'm privileged to be with you all this morning as we actually finally jump into the book of Philippians itself. Did want to say. Steve mentioned this in the liturgy, that this Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent, which is a season, it's the 40 days from Ash Wednesday up until uh, Good Friday or Easter Sunday, it kind of changes on certain years, but that's the, that's the period that this runs through, and, and the church all over the world will be observing Lent in various ways. The word Lent actually, I believe, is a Latin word that just means 40th, and I feel like our church, our church is interesting in that we go really hard after Advent, and we talk a lot about Advent, and we've always kind of done a little bit less for Lent, and we're trying to, we're trying to change that a little bit, um, not by doing less for Advent, but by doing more for Lent. Um, yeah, we're doing away with Advent, just too much. Um, Advent, if you remember, when we were talking about it, even our series was called Watching and Waiting. Advent is very much a season, it's those four weeks or so right before Christmas, where we acknowledge that so much of life is about waiting, is about waiting on God and being patient and having hope in spite of appearances around us. That's, that's the real main theme and note that we strike during Advent. Lent, on the other hand, even when you, even when you think of Lent, even if you haven't been around the church, like what's the first thing that comes to mind for you when we talk about Lent? Yeah, fat, like giving, right, you give up chocolate or whatever. Um, why, why is that? Why, why do we associate Lent with giving something up? It's because Lent is also a season of preparation, much like Advent, but the, the theme is a little bit different. Really what we're doing there is we're participating, even where those 40 days comes from, is we're participating with Jesus, who himself went for 40 days into the desert, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, before his public ministry, and in the desert was very much the season of preparation for him. Uh, we've talked about this in, in various discipleship courses, uh, what was going on with those, those 40 days um, that Jesus was in the wilderness. But it was a season where by um, denying himself of his basic nourishment, of his basic needs, he, he was saying no in order to learn the discipline of saying no, in order to say yes 
to God is one way to think about it. Um, some traditions say that during Lent, we fast from lesser things in order to feast on the ultimate thing. So we fast from uh, various other goods in our lives, but secondary goods, in order to feast on, on the Word of God, in order to feast in prayer, in order to feast as the community of God's people. And so that's really the rhythm of Lent. I was talking to uh, a pastor friend of mine. He's actually an Anglican priest, and so uh, he gets called Father. He's Father Kevin now, which always cracks me up, um, But because uh, he's like a buddy, right? Um, but uh, you don't have to call me Father. But he's, so in the Anglican tradition, though, what they talk about is that Lent is very much a season where you, and this sounds rather morbid, but given everything that we've been through in the last couple of years, I think that this is a moment for this kind of embrace, is that Lent is really the idea of, of preparing to learn how to die well, um, dying well. And of course, we do that in minor ways through something like fasting or giving something up. But there is also this ultimate way. Think of Jesus' call to discipleship as a call to take up our cross daily, to be crucified daily, to say no to self in order that God might bring a new life in and through us. And so the rhythm of Lent is really that rhythm. One of the things that works so well with the particular book that we're in, which is really a, a letter, this letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, is that Philippians very much is, is with that theme. It's going to teach us the rhythms of discipleship, the rhythms of being a follower of Jesus, which are so often the rhythm of saying no to certain things in order to say yes to the right kind of things. And so I want to say that at the outset, because I don't know that, that the five verses we're in this morning necessarily um, are, are the place where you'll hear that most loudly. But as we go through Philippians, there is a reason why we chose this book uh, for, for the season of Lent. This morning, though, we are in these first five verses. We've done a lot of background already on Philippians. I want to acknowledge that. But I want to do just a little bit more just to even reintroduce some of the categories that we've been talking about, that Jalen talked about even last week. But I want to start with a little, I don't know, exercise. Here's my question. How would you fill in the blank in this little, uh, in this little paragraph here for our modern culture, I'm not looking for like what you think the right answer is, but for right now, how would you say that most people, say in the West, in America, would fill this in? By nature, we yearn and hunger for blank. And once we have glimpsed some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. What do you think that our culture would fill in that blank with? Power? Wealth? Significance, fame, peace, acceptance. That's a good one. Yeah, my, my first thought was actually love. The first time that, that I saw it, I thought, oh, romantic. Right, this almost sounds like a, a lyric in a, in a current pop song or something, right? Um, very elegant lyric for uh, Ariana Grande or something. Um, but uh, yeah. This is actually a quote from uh, a man named, you can put the next slide up. This is a quote from a man named Cicero who lived uh, just prior to the events of the, of the scriptures. He was a, a Roman, as you see there, scholar, senator, wrote a bunch of things. And he says, by nature, by nature, this is, 
This is, this is just who we are. And by the way, this shows you that how conditioned we are by our cultural moment, by the particular place that we find ourselves in history, geographically, and all this. He says, by nature, we yearn and hunger for honor is the word that he chooses, the concept that he chooses. And once we have glimpsed some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure honor. This was the main pursuit. This was the highest ideal in the Roman Empire in which all of these events happen. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we introduced this whole thing by saying one of the most essential things that you have to understand about the background of this letter is that it is written to a Roman what? A Roman, starts with a C, colony. Good, some of you are listening. Way to go. A Roman colony, this outpost of the Roman Empire, put intentionally sort of way out from Rome, the capital itself, but functioning as if it were Rome, as if it bore all of the significance and status and authority of Rome. And then Roman citizens were put there in order not to create this bubble within the empire, but in order to spread the values of the empire to all of the surrounding areas. And the whole reason why our series is called Citizens of Heaven is because the, the, the apostle and missionary who, who wrote this letter, Paul, is he's going to pick up that whole concept and say, you too are citizens of a place that you are not currently in, and yet you represent that place with all of the authority and values of it, and you do not exist to be a bubble within this other place to which you're sent. You exist to spread those values to the surrounding areas. So he says, you are citizens of heaven, and the colony of which you are a part is a colony of heaven, namely the church itself. And so in that reality of the, the realities of a Roman colony, the realities of, of the rights and privileges and values of Roman citizenship, Paul is going to constantly be pushing against the values of Rome in order to say there's a different kind of pursuit that you're to have as the people of God. This idea of honor was so pervasive in the Roman culture that all of life could be understood as, uh, as this word, this great Latin phrase, cursus honorum, cursus honorum. Cursus uh, is an ancient word that means uh, sort of a, a, the course, but more specifically, the course set out like a race, like a, a race course. And so the race, and then you see that word honor there, the race for honor, the quest for honor is how most historians call it. And this was the this was the way to advance in Roman culture and society. You had to write, we, we talk about, we have phrases in our moment like climbing the corporate ladder or something like that, right? Like this is kind of the equivalent of that at a broad societal level, is that there was this quest for honor. And within this quest for honor, there were, there were certain strata that um, were actually incredibly difficult, right? It's, it's why the, the image of a ladder is probably the wrong one. This is like a race where you're always 100 meters back from those that you're trying to pursue because what ultimately, where you were in this race was determined by, and this doesn't sound so foreign from our day, is by two things, your family of origin, what was your name, and by your wealth. How much money did you have were the two things that determined this. And that there were actual rankings here. So you had the elites and the non-elites, and then even within the elites and the non-elites, there were these different categories. So the highest of the high being the senators, which you've probably heard that Roman senators have, have the power, uh, are, are the governing authorities, all the way down to the non-elites, with the lowest rung being slaves. 
just wanted to show you this because basically your whole pursuit as a Roman citizen was to try as best you could, whether it was yourself or more likely over generations and generations, to somehow climb this social strata, to win, in some sense, the cursus honorum, to win this quest for honor. This was so pervasive in culture that there's three primary ways in which you could identify who was winning the race. And, and this is the stuff where it's just, it's kind of wild how, um, how much this played into the, the Roman just kind of cultural atmosphere that these Christians were living in. One is clothing. And it wasn't just like, oh, you, like if you had, you know, dope swag, um, you were a wealthy person, yeah. Um, no, 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 there were like specific clothing that you were only allowed to wear if you were of a certain strata, right? Like you've probably seen the togas, right? Like you couldn't just throw on a toga as a, as a non-elite freedman. Like that was not cool. And even uh, only, only certain strata of the elites, but even within the elites, you could wear your toga, but there were certain color sashes that you could only wear if you were at a certain level. And it was criminal to step outside of that and to wear something that did not properly belong to you. That's like how pervasive this was. So literally by what you put on in the morning, you were announcing how wealthy you were and of what family origin you were. Second, that there were very specific uh, order by which you were seated both at public spectacles and also at, at private affairs, at, at like private dinners. And so uh, picture, like, you know, you go to a Yankee game, and it's like the, the lowest strata are seated first in the top. This is literally how they would do it, right? You think of the Roman Colosseum. They would seat the, the non-elites first, and then, you know, a level up, and then ultimately, just before the event would start, in would come, you know, say, the senators, if you were in Rome, to much fanfare, and the people would have to clap. Like, think of how, how much that sends the message of this is where you belong, right? This is where you want to get to, though. Imagine being one of the ones who walks in and tens of thousands of people have to rise their feet and clap for you. The curses, anorum. Last thing, or, or here's another crazy one, is that private affairs, what you would do, and you see this in the life of Jesus, and it's actually one of the more curious things in the life of Jesus, is you see that dinner parties were often an incredibly mixed crowd. And sometimes I wondered at that. It wasn't until I, I did some of this background work that I was like, oh, that's why that's the case. Is you would have like the, the highest of the high, the, the most elite, but then you would have like, like think of the story where a woman walks in and she starts anointing people's feet and they're like, oh, if you knew who this woman was. The problem isn't she came into the party. The problem was what she was doing. They were used to mixed parties. Why? You would literally invite people. If you were inviting like a decurion, say, you better have some freeborn or some freedmen at the party to make that person feel like their status was elevated. That's a dinner party's worth back in their day. Again, how much this was ground into you. This is what life is about. This is what matters in life. Finally, one of the more outrageous ones is there have been these things found from ancient Rome, these court transcripts, you can think of them as uh, where literally um, it, it could not be clearer that part of your defense, if you had done a crime, was to establish where you belonged on the cursus honorum. And that depending on where you are, 
on that strata would determine not only the severity, if you had done the crime, not only the severity of your, of your punishment, but whether you were punished or not. We, we, there's this particularly outrageous one where someone basically argues like, yeah, this, I think it's an equestrian, um, which we think of as someone who rides horses, but I think it's an equestrian person, and they're like, yeah, let's establish this. Defense. And then they're like, oh, yeah, he clearly did this, but like, yeah, we're, we're not going to mess with that, which explains, by the way, something that happens in the story that, that Jalen and I preached through in Acts 16, where you remember where Paul finally claims his rights, and he says, hey, I'm a citizen, and I'm not to be treated as you're treating me. One of the most interesting things about that story is do you notice that Paul does not claim his rights as a citizen, because citizens, this all assumes citizenship in Rome. He doesn't claim those at the front end. This begins to be a clue, even what's going on in these first five verses in Philippians, is that Paul could have played the game far earlier in everything that went down in Acts 16, right? Where does Paul end up in Acts 16 ultimately? Jail, right? Like he ends up shackled in jail. That was not okay, we figure out, by the end of the story, because he was a Roman citizen. He deserved a trial. He deserved a public hearing. But he does not claim those rights at the front end of his suffering. Instead, he willingly puts, if you will, the cursus honorum behind him and says, I refuse to play your game, goes all the way into that suffering until... Actually, his claiming of his rights benefits another person. Seems to be what's going on there. Is remember, he, he basically protects the jailer. He doesn't run away from the jailer. And then the jailer puts his faith in Jesus. Seems like most scholars would say that what's going on when he finally says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, is, hey, this is on all of your heads, not just the jailer's head. And so it's only in order to love and serve someone else that Paul is willing to leverage his own participation in the cursus in Rome. All right. I hope... Your wheels are going, you're putting some some pieces together, right? Because one, this is pretty foreign to us in some senses. And if you don't have some of these categories whirling around in your mind, I don't think you're going to read Philippians as deeply as as you possibly can. But I also hope you hear, are we really that far? Is this really so different than our cultural moment? Some cultural observers say that we are actually going through this massive shift in the West where we are going from very much a, a, a sort of right and wrong guilt-based culture to more of an honor-shame culture. This is probably one of the things that social media and all that has done, is it's made, right, even some of the things that, that you guys shouted out, significance, fame, notoriety, those kind of things, right? Like, that's, that's fairly new in the last 10, 15 years in the West um, compared to what we would have said probably, think of 20, 30 years ago, 80s, 90s. Um, you're probably talking more about money and security, and uh, someone said earlier, righteousness, like, like being right, being seen as a good moral person. Now we are in a little bit more of an honor-shame moment. But I wanted to just show you some of that to set the background for what we have here. And at long last, we open the letter itself. By the way, I know that some of you uh, in Intellectual 101, I know that you're working through Philippians. This would be a great uh, opportunity for you to open those scripture journals you were handed. Um, those of you in Intellectual 201, um, yes, this sounds a lot like what we're doing in that course, but I would love for you as best as you can to have a, a physical Bible open precisely because of the fact that like today we're doing five verses, right? We don't normally do five verses. We normally do a much larger chunk. 
a letter in the New Testament begs to be um, gone through a little bit slower than other parts of Scripture. And, and we do this in different ways, um, even in different sermon series, right? Like in the Psalms, when we preached the Psalms, we said the Psalms are not meant to be picked apart and everywhere. They're meant to wash over us emotionally. And, and elicit an emotional response. Other parts of the scripture are more narrative. So, so we're to hear them and think about what are the contours of the story. A letter was written with tremendous care, partially just because of the scarcity of materials. And so Paul would have put a lot of thought into how he structured this. And as we go through it, you will see that there is structure here. There is intentional repetition of words. Um, this is not an accidental document, which is why we'll go through it a little bit slower, and which is why I would love for you to have a physical Bible so that by the time you're done, Maybe Philippians is the most colorful book in your Bible, right? You have permission from your pastor to go ahead and write in your Bible. I think that that's a good and wonderful thing. Let's do this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, so Paul is, is the primary author of this. He's the one that we were looking at for the last two weeks. This early missionary, church planter, wrote much of the New Testament. Uh, he's going by his Gentile name here, his given name, his name of birth is what? Saul. Very good. Do you know why he's called Paul among the Gentiles? Because Paul's just a little bit more of a Gentile name, right? Some of you who have come from, from other places in the world, maybe subtly changed your name in order to, to allow people to pronounce it a little better. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that's a good thing or a frustrating thing. Um, my name is Scott right? Like, that's pretty hard to mess up. Um, so I get it. Uh, but that's what's going on here, is that this is a much more familiar uh, name in the Gentile world. I can feel that my mic is going crazy. Um, so that's why he goes by Paul. Timothy is his protege, his understudy, if you will. Uh, we see letters written to Timothy in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Timothy is often with Paul, especially when he's in prison. That's one of the most important things to understand about this letter is that it is written while Paul is in prison. There's disagreement about where he's in prison, not super important to your life or mine, uh, but he's in prison. We know that. What's most important in this opening line, though, is servants. And again, physical Bible. My Bible has a little number one next to the word servants. Does yours? Say yes if it does. All right, go down with me to your footnotes there. Or what? Slaves. Uh, the modern translations try and soften the interpretation here because of all of the connotations around slavery and the subtle differences and all that. But the word that's used here is the word for slave. It's the word on that prior slide for where, where is that in the cursus sonorum? All the way at the bottom, right? Like Paul right here at the beginning is intentionally placing himself at the bottom of the pecking order. Like all slaves, what matters most is who is your master? Who owns you? Paul is making himself low, and he's saying, but I am low, putting myself in the position of a slave, and yet I belong to a good and perfect and righteous and benevolent master. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I love this ordering here. Who does he address first, the leaders or the people? The people, right? What does he call the people? Saints, right? 
This is, I think, against a lot of the pecking order in a lot of churches, is you have your leaders who are your really holy people, right? And then you got, you know, you got your riffraff, basically, right? Um, you got the other, other people. Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm addressing the saints first because you are all saints. That is who your fundamental identity in Christ is, is that you are saints. And actually, the exact language that he uses here is uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The overseers, the leaders, the, this is the New Testament word, overseer, uh, is literally the word episkopos. What do you hear in that? Episkopos? Episcopal, very good. Uh, Episcopalians have episkopos, have overseers, have, have bishops is another word for it. Because of this word, this is uh, for us, uh, the other New Testament word that's used uh, exactly in the same way as overseer is elder. So he's addressing the elders and the deacons. This seems to be how the early Christian movement organized itself was around these two offices of elder or overseer, pastor, and of deacon. Um, and so they would set aside the, the, uh, those who are identified as mature, those who are, who are identified as humble and able to sacrificially love and serve the people into this role of elders. And then others were set aside for very specific tasks, right? Like think about us putting together a staff, right? There's certain things that just need uh, a kind of care and attention in an ongoing way when a group of people is organizing itself. The role for that was called deacons, which actually even that role was not primarily about competence, uh, but was primarily and first and foremost about character of these people. And so this was how the early church organized itself. But I love what Paul does here. He calls the people the saints, and then he just kind of tags on the elders and deacons. He says, with the elders and deacons. Yeah, you guys too, right? Like, do you see what he's doing here? He's inverting that curses anorum, because what you wouldn't do in Roman culture is go into one of those mixed dinner parties and start with, oh, hello, I see that the freedmen are with us. I see that we have slaves with us. It's so nice to see you here. Oh, and also with the senator who's here, right? Do you hear how there's this little subversive thing that he's doing, even in the way that he introduces the letter? I love that he addresses all of us as saints. Such an interesting thing in the New Testament is, um, you know, in, in movements like ours, uh, evangelical, reformed, none of this means anything to you, um, good on you. But in movements like ours, right, it's popular to say that we are all sinners saved by grace, right? And that levels the playing field. For, we're all just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. And there's something beautiful in that. There's something right in that. But if you look, the New Testament actually never identifies the people of God in our fundamental identity as sinners. We were, we were sinners. That is something that is said time and time again. You were sinners, but we were also bought with a price. And now our fundamental identity is actually we are, we are saints. When we think of saints, right, we've, some of you probably grew up in the Catholic tradition, or, or you know, any of you who grew up in the Northeast are, are familiar with, with Catholicism, which sainthood, right, is, is the highest level that you can attain to. And it's not even something that you get in this life. It's something that people have to decide on years after you've been dead that you were of such perfection that you deserve a special status. Now, I'm not making a comment on that practice so far as to say what's interesting is that the New Testament says the status of sainthood is actually something that all of us receive. 
at the moment that you put your faith in Christ. You are a saint. I wonder sometimes how that might change our fundamental approach to some of the, some of the struggles in our life. Right? Like how you understand yourself is pretty important in terms of setting expectations for, for what kind of person you can and can't become in Christ. If you see yourself fundamentally as a sinner, always enslaved, always overwhelmed, you're going to deal with the same struggles the rest of your life. I think that that has one trajectory. If you say, wait, 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 in spite of all evidence to the contrary, Jesus says the apostle Paul is willing to call this very mixed crowd of the church of Philippi, right? Like this is getting, this, he doesn't say, hey, anybody who actually qualifies for this title, get them together. No, he's, he's expecting that this applies to the whole church that this is written to, that you're a saint, right? So much of the trajectory of, of a New Testament ethic, by that I mean how the New Testament calls us to become a different kind of people in this world is this dynamic. It's, it's not become something you're not yet. It's not the best you is out there. Let's see if we can get you to it. So often the thrust of the New Testament instead is become who you already are. Hear me on that? Become who you already are, saint. Become what God has actually placed in you when he bought you at a price and brought him to himself and gave you the family name and adopted you as a son or daughter. That is who you now are. And yes, there's all this junk, past behaviors, the culture of which you are a part, right? That you're, all that comes with being in broken flesh that stands against that actual true identity of who you are breaking through. But I wonder the difference, right? I'm going to keep saying that. I think it's been so revolutionary um, for, for many of you from what you said is this idea that our strongest desires are not necessarily our deepest desires. Our strongest desires are not our deepest desires. We know this in, in really small ways, right? Like your strongest desire, you would love to whatever, be in shape, eat right, and all those things. But there's this strong desire that really loves cake or whatever, right? Like, but that strong, which of those is the truer articulation of who you actually are? That's a really important question, not the cake one. It's a really important question when it comes to ultimate things in life. What's the true you, the one that actually longs for righteousness, the one that longs to love the presence of God, the one that longs to be done with some of those old patterns of sin, the things that bring shame, the things that speak condemnation, the, the one that would love to walk in holiness, the one that would love to love others the way that you know they can be loved if just you would get out of the way. The scriptures say that's your truest self. That's why you're so frustrated by the continuance of sin in your life. In some ways, the only time a believer should be really concerned about am I really in Christ is when we're no longer frustrated by when those stronger desires win out over those deeper desires. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Notice it's saints in Christ Jesus. Not saints as qualified on your own. Saints as evidenced by your moral record of performance. No, no, your sainthood, your holiness 
right? The, this is the same word. The, the saint word is, is really the, the word for holiness here. Think of the word sanctify, right? You hear that same root in there. Your holiness, your set-apartness is something that is part of your identity because you're in Christ. There's a participation with Christ that qualifies you for this identity. I love what Karl Barth says about this verse, Karl Barth, as a, a German theologian. I don't quote Karl Barth a lot, but I stumbled across this. As he says, the addition of in Christ Jesus rules out any reflection on the subjective qualifications or worth of the people concerned. Holy people are unholy people who nevertheless, as such, have been singled out, claimed, and I love this word, and requisitioned by God for his control, for his use, for himself who is holy. Their holiness is and remains in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to see Rome around every uh, stone in, in Philippians, but I can't help but just give you one little piece of background. So we said that uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. There's this very famous battle fought there, if you remember, and a lot of the veterans from that battle ended up going there. That battle was actually between two uh, opposing claimants to, to the, the Roman Empire. Uh, one side was Brutus and Cassius, and the other side was uh, Octavian and someone else that I can't remember right now, and I don't think I have in my notes. But do you remember this from uh, Shakespeare? Julius Caesar. Remember Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar is, is the Caesar just before all the events of the Bible. What happens to Julius Caesar? <laughs> Brutally murdered, right? Um, and, and who does it? Who does he look to? And he says, et tu. Brutus, nice. Et tu, Brutus. Look at you little scholars over here. Great. Um, and so you have Julius Caesar who is murdered, and then you have Brutus and Cassius who stand on one side, and then Octavian. Do I have it here? Anybody know? It would be amazing if you knew. Octavian and one other person. I could make up a name and you wouldn't even know. Um, Antony, Mark Antony. Yeah, of course it's Mark Antony. Way to go. Okay, so it's uh, Mark Antony and, uh, and Octavian. Octavian is actually the rightful claimant to the throne because he is Julius Caesar's nephew and he is his adopted son. What happens is that like six months after Julius is, is slain, I think that like the, some sort of games are going on and there's this comet in the sky. And Octavian, remember the rightful claimant to the throne, nephew, adopted son of Julius Caesar says, there goes the body of, of Julius. Uh, he's, he's, being, he's being welcomed by the gods. And this, and this comet stays in the sky for six days. And it becomes a powerful symbol of Julius. This is actually the first time that a, that a Roman ruler is associated with divinity. This was not a thing before this moment. That like the, in a lot of ancient cultures, right, the king would be seen as, as also divine. This was not the case in Rome. This is the first time that this really happens, such that then people who, who sided with Mark Antony and Octavian say, wow, Julius Caesar was a god, which makes Octavian what? The son of God. Very good. Here's the coinage in the time of Octavian. So he took on the name casual Caesar Augustus, the great Caesar, you know, nice to name yourself. Uh, so this is Octavian. This is his face. 
And then over here, what this says is divine Julius with the comet. You see the comet here? So this is their currency at that time. So you have the divine comet on one side reminding you Julius was divine, divine Julius. And then on the other side, here's Octavian who took on the name Caesar Augustus, which makes him what? Son of God, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A little subversive thing going on there. Who's our God? Who's our Father God? The one and only God, creator God, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. Who's his rightful heir and son? Who's the true son of God to be worshiped as Lord? Because to say Jesus is Lord is to say who is not. Caesar is not, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Another, another thing going on here is that Rome at that time was this empire that you know, stretched from basically England all the way to, to India. And it was said that this was a season of great, what, peace in the world. Remember this, Pax Romana? Does that sound familiar to you? The Pax Romana, the peace that was brought by Rome, Pax being the, the Latin word for peace, the peace that uniquely Rome brings. Now he says, grace and peace to you from a different father and, and a different son of God. Notice what he puts first, grace and peace. In other words, Rome cannot actually bring you the peace that you long for. Only the grace that is solely available in God and his son Jesus can bring the kind of true and lasting shalom into your life for which you long. Peace will never come at the edge of a sword. Peace will never come, Putin, by war, right? By more death and violence. Peace only comes to the human heart when you experience that which you do not deserve, when you get a gift that you know in your deepest being you are not worthy of, this is grace. And this is grace that is uniquely given by this God, by this Lord Jesus, who instead of going out and saying peace will come at the expense of the death of others, puts himself in death's way puts himself in violence's way, puts himself in the empire's way, takes on all of that, takes on the sin and rebellion that screams even now as I'm preaching this text to say, all of y'all might be saints, I'm not a saint. Takes all of that stuff upon himself, bears it such that you and I might go free. That grace brings true and lasting peace. Nothing else will. Nothing else will. I don't think that we live in a moment where we're in this society-wide cursus honorum. I do think, though, that one of the things that, I don't know, I get a sense that, that, that people like us end up doing is we find our, our little subsection of the world and we create our own little cursus honorum, right? It could be your, your job. It could be your career, it could be your field, it could be your family, it could be your group of friends, it could be your Instagram followers, it could be whatever. But we truly believe that how peace comes so often, if not that we would say it by our actions, that peace will come if we just had a little bit more of that, a little bit more of all the things that you named at the beginning to fill in that blank. 
that the reason why those come up so quickly is not because that stuff lives out there, right? Can we be honest for a second? It's because that stuff lives in here. We say, oh, if we could just have it, peace would come, right? Rome's version of that is, Cicero says, by nature, we yearn for honor. No, we don't. By nature, we yearn for God. And until you have God, you will always be looking for peace in all the wrong places because you are made for a person, not a quest, not a race, not a ladder. You are made for a person and that person has come and done everything necessary that you and I could never possibly do in order to finally win us to himself and call us to himself. Grace and peace from God our Father and the true Lord, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the sinless one, the perfect substitute. Grace and peace from that one is Paul's message. And what I love about this is it's at the front end of the letter. It's already yours. He doesn't tell us, them and us to do a bunch of stuff. He says, but grace and peace, it's already yours. It's bestowed on you at the front end. He doesn't end the, he doesn't get all the way through everything. And he says, and if you do all this, Grace and peace to you will finally come and be given. We operate from what we've been given, not for what's yet to be given. We become who we already are. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice, notice the, the alls and the everys. Thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He has fond memories of this church. He's fond memories of all the stuff that happened in Acts 16, of Lydia being the first one who came to faith, and then the jailer and his whole family getting baptized. I like to picture that as, as this letter is being read, Lydia and that jailer and his family are sitting together and say, man, he still remembers us, remembers our names. He says, and I thank God every time I remember you in prayer, and I do it with joy, and I do it because of your partnership in the gospel. And I love this, this word partnership there. Anyone want to take a crack? You guys are on fire today. The Greek word that that partnership is, anybody know it? Melly? Koinonia. Called you out by name, so well done. Koinonia. No, that's not it. No, I'm just kidding. It's it. It's totally it. It's totally it. <clears throat> Koinonia. It's this, it's this beautiful Greek word, right? Churches name themselves after this koinonia. It's this deep word. But clearly, what's going on here is Paul is at least thanking them for a financial gift that they've given him. Here's how jail worked back in that time. You were sent to jail. It wasn't like you got your three square meals a day and a and a and a change of clothes and all that stuff you had to be provided for by whoever was out there who could take care of you. And it seems like the Philippian church, part of what he's getting at here, you'll hear this later in the letter, is that they're, they're at times the only ones who have kept sending him stuff. Um, whether that's, that's physical things, clothes, books, food, or people to actually visit him. That's at least what this partnership looks like. But this word goes far deeper than that. What he's talking about there is you have locked arms with me in the things of God. You've been in it with me. You've been in it, in the good stuff, in the bad. You've been interested in what I'm doing. And that brings me so much joy because I see the faithfulness of God through your everyday kindness to me. 
We'll see this a bunch of times in the Philippians, that one of the primary ways that Paul identifies the faithfulness and blessing of God in his life is by the everyday goodness and kindness of God's people. And he claims that, remember where he's writing from, he's writing from jail. He claims, he says, it makes me happy, it puts a smile on my face. What puts a smile on his face? To remember God's faithfulness through you. That's the call here at the beginning of, again, he's saying, there's history here. I'm going to call you to some things. We've got some business to do, but let's not remember all that God has already done among us. Let's claim that with joy. I think that this is a, a word for us individually and even corporately as a church. We can be so focused on the present and the future that we almost never take a moment to look over our shoulders and to remember God's faithfulness by imperfect <laughs> saints, right? Like us, partnering together. God does stuff in the world. He blesses people. He's blessed you. I can almost guarantee it. And yet so often we forget it. I don't know where I, don't know where I saw this. Um, probably at like Home Goods or something. But I saw a sign that said, write your blessings in stone. Does anybody know the rest of it? Somebody has this hanging in your house, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Write your blessings in stone and your anxieties in sand. Hmm. Right? If you're a preacher, you go, I could preach that. Because <laughs> here's what we actually do. What do we actually do? We write our anxieties in stone and our blessings in sand. Right? Like my kids at the beach writing their name, and then they jump away, and the waves come in, and it washes away. So often, this is what we do with the blessing of God. Wow, amazing. God really came through. That actually just happened. I prayed for that. Did that happen because I prayed? Wow, those people really showed up for me. Wow, God really is good. It goes away. And we turn around. And we turn back to this, to this stone that's behind us with all of the anxieties of the moment. What would it look like if we took Hallmark more seriously? Right? <laughs> What would it look like? What would it look like if we modeled what Paul is doing here? In all my remembrance of the koinonia of the people of God, it puts a smile on my face because I remember God's faithfulness through you. There is the ultimate faithfulness of a God who by nature we yearn for, who did everything possible to bless us with, with the peace that we actually long for. But so often, that, what's the best way to say this? I don't think we often forget that. Sometimes we forget that God really can and has and does show up for us in the everyday. You're like, yeah, I know Jesus died for me. But where is he right now? Where is he in this moment? Where is he in this circumstance? And I think that the one thing that we so often leave on the table, and I am talking to some of you who I know are in immense moments of pain. But one of the things that I do think we leave on the table, and I'm saying this as someone who's, who's walking through something right now, is we forget the goodness of God that's already behind us. Because it's sand. It's out in the ocean already. It doesn't matter. But if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then the greatest evidence that there is grace out ahead of us, that there is goodness out ahead of us, 
is that there's grace and goodness behind us. That's why our remembrance of the faithfulness of God is a source of joy. Because it can fuel our hope that God still is faithful, that he knows what he's doing, that his hands are not off the wheel in moments of tremendous anxiety, in moments where it feels like that anxiety is absolutely, eternally, forever written in stone. Yet we know what's behind us. This is why Steve jokingly said uh, in liturgy, he's like, oh, I'm just talking about Ebenezer's. And I was like, yeah, as one does. You did talk about Ebenezer's, I left for, right? What is an Ebenezer? What did you say it was, Steve? Tell us. A help stone, a monument. Something that God had his people do is that they take stones and at a place where God had provided for them. They build a, a big old just stone pile. Nothing special. It's a bunch of stones there. Such that what? You wake up in the morning, and you go out, and you got all these things, and you go, that's right. That happened. That really happened. And we wouldn't have built that if it wasn't crazy enough for us to throw a bunch of stones up and say, we've got to remember that. That's right. And you move past it, right? We need Ebenezer's. And so I'm going to invite you in a moment to remember the ultimate Ebenezer. The blood of Christ poured out for you. The body of Christ broken for you. But I want to be audacious and ask you to do something first, which is I actually want you to concentrate on a lesser Ebenezer. I want you to just take two minutes and to think about what have I forgotten that God has done for me? Where have I not remembered his faithfulness in the past to me? I want you to just think about that. I want you to turn that into prayer for God. And then I'll lead you through communion in just a couple minutes.